We're continuing on this morning with our series on our ancient foe, and our scripture reading is Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we turn our hearts to your word, open our minds and our ears to receive, open our hearts to, Lord, understand in our wills to put into practice all that you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last Lord's Day in Genesis chapter 3, we noticed the first appearance in Scripture of our ancient foe, the serpent, or that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, as he is called in Revelation chapter 12. Our text last Sunday read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And if we had been reading Genesis with no real background in the rest of Scripture, we might have found that to be quite an abrupt introduction. One minute, the serpent is just not there. The next he is. On one page, the world appears to be inhabited by the perfect couple living in harmony with the creation, with each other, and with the God who made them. And on the next page, this new character comes into view who seems intent on disrupting all of that. In addition, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 said nothing of this evil being. In fact, quite to the contrary, Genesis chapter 1 Verse 31 stated, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So where did that snake come from? What is the origin of evil in God's good world? And there are many books and many sermons have been preached and courses taught on this, but the answer really is fairly simple. We can rule out the idea that Satan or evil was there all along as an opposing force to the goodness of God. There are Eastern religions and now some Western religions that kind of posit that idea of dualism. The thought that you cannot have light without dark, that you cannot have good without evil. The idea that the force must always be in balance, if you are a fan of questionably of questionable science fiction, but it's a patently unbiblical idea. That idea that good and evil are these opposing forces that must always be there, that we wouldn't know good if we didn't know evil. That's actually part of the lie that I think Satan was telling. 
And besides that, the Gospel of John, speaking of Jesus, the word who was in fact God, tells us that all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So apart from the God who spoke all things into being and those things that he spoke into being, there has never been anything or anyone else. God created all things. And add to that the verse that we read a moment ago from Genesis chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good. Then it's equally clear that God did not create Satan as an evil being. He created him good, and then he fell. So the question remains, what happened? Well, there's this old tradition that says the answer can be found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, which reads in the King James Version, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, you may ask, as Tevye the Dairyman did in Fiddler on the Roof, how did this tradition get started? And his answer is my answer, I'll tell you. I don't know but it's a tradition. It's one that's been around for a very long time. The thing is, traditionally, some think Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, are about the devil because they use the name Lucifer, which is also the name of a, apparently a popular TV show these days, but the name Lucifer is thought to belong to the devil because it's used in this passage in Isaiah chapter 14. So you get this kind of circular thing. Well, Lucifer is the name of the devil. Why? Because that's what he's called in Isaiah 14. Well, how do you know that Isaiah 14 is about the devil? Well, because it talks about Lucifer, which is actually just the word for light bringer. Um, if you have other translations, you might find Helel, son of the morning, not Lucifer. Um, and this tradition goes back far enough that John Calvin felt obligated to respond to it and to object to it in the strongest possible terms. He wrote, it was an instance of gross ignorance to imagine that Lucifer was the king of devils and that the prophet gave him this name. But as these inventions have no probability whatever, let us pass by them as useless fables." Calvin saw this section of the book of Isaiah as referring to the king of Babylon, which, in fact, it clearly does. There are other passages of similar nature that could be cited, not least Ezekiel 28 and Daniel chapter 10, which refer primarily to the king of Tyre and the princes and the kings of Persia, respectively. But in all of these, there seems to be kind of a deeper context as well. Also, it seems to be the case that since Satan inevitably wears a disguise, he always does, Scripture inevitably addresses him through whatever particular mask he is wearing. Now, if the Lord is willing, we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. We're going to talk about a passage in the New Testament that tells us Satan does not appear 
like one of those bat-winged, hideous monsters that you see on the covers of heavy metal albums. In fact, he appears as an angel of light, and his ministers appear not like Ozzy and Black Sabbath and all those groups. His ministers appear as ministers of righteousness. He always wears a disguise. He was doing that in Genesis chapter 3 as well. He appeared to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. And although the curse was ultimately directed not at the snake per se, but at the devil, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Still, in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And we know it was not a snake that was responsible for tempting our first parents. It was Satan. And yet, because he wore the guise of a snake, God addressed him so. Again, John Calvin wrote, When all things are more accurately weighed, readers endued with sound judgment will easily perceive that the language is of a mixed character. For God so addresses the serpent that the last clause belongs to the devil. If it seems to anyone absurd that the punishment of another's fraud should be exacted from a brute animal, the solution is at hand, that since it had been created for the benefit of man, as all of creation was, there was nothing improper in its being accursed from the moment that it was employed for his destruction. Now, there's so much on this subject that's not explicitly stated in scripture, and there's so much that we can't know for a certainty, and I'm not going to stand up here and pretend otherwise. But I think C.S. Lewis gets to the reality of it quite well in Mere Christianity, and again, this is a fairly long quote, but he wrote, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. That's interesting, I'll just throw this in. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. He, as an adult, did not believe in God, did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. And sometimes we have this idea that if we talk about the devil, if we talk about Satan, if we talk about some of these things which atheists perceive to be myths and fairy tales, that will actually drive them away. But if they are being called into faith through God's grace in Christ Jesus, quite the opposite happens. And that was the case for Lewis. He recognized the difference between real Christianity and dualism is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. But it does not think this is a war between independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. The thing is, we're not only living in a part of the universe that is occupied by the rebel, we are living there because either we used to be or we are on the rebel's side. That was the point of the first couple of verses in our reading from Ephesians 2 this morning. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's another name for Satan, and we're going to explore in a minute how we were following him. But before we move on, let me go back quickly to something from last Sunday. In Genesis 3, Satan said to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die, you will be as gods. And we noted at the time that it was an empty promise coming as it did from the father of lies, especially when God had already commanded them, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. I pointed out last Sunday, God promised they would die, and they surely did, because God always keeps his promises. Well, here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, is the reason why I can make that statement in this context with confidence. It's not that Adam and Eve physically died on the day that they ate the fruit in disobedience to the command of God. It's clear from the text of Genesis that they didn't. Still, they did die. They died spiritually. They died in terms of their relationship to God. And they passed that death along to all of their children. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, our father Adam, and death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. Jesus once said of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, and this is why because he killed Adam and Eve. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. On the day that our first parents chose rebellion, over, uh, rebellion against God over the worship of God, and that was a choice. Understand, it was a choice to worship God, to honor him as God and be thankful, or to rebel against his revealed word. Well, those who rebel against the revealed word cannot truly worship him, not then and not now. This is something else we'll be exploring in the weeks to come. On the day that Adam and Eve said, we will not honor God as God, we will do what we want to do, on that day they became dead in trespasses and sin, having no disposition, inclination, or desire for the things of God. Because that's what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins. That's what it means to follow the course of this world. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. But notice also they weren't merely choosing created, creeping, they weren't merely choosing created things over the creator as if that wasn't bad enough. It would be. They were also following the prince of the power of the air. They were following Satan. And that's really the choice that we have. It's not the case that Adam and Eve had been in some sort of a favorable relationship toward God, and then when they fell, they fell to a neutral position, from which they could then choose of their own free will either God or evil. Rather, God's children, Adam and Eve, the people that he had created in his own image, the people who walked with him in the garden in the cool of the day, were now choosing to walk in the footsteps of the devil's own rebellion. Whenever we turn away from the living God, we don't 
turn away from God or from good to something neutral. We're either following God or we're following Satan. It's not choosing to become a blank slate. The children of God became the children of wrath. And to borrow a phrase from a little later in Ephesians chapter 2, they became people who had no hope and were without God in the world. The thing is, this condition of being dead in trespasses and sins, of following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, wasn't merely Adam and Eve's position after the fall. It was our position after the fall. Look at the way Paul worded this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not they, Adam and Eve, you, Ephesians, and us, people here today. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, one of the things that we have to understand about this spiritual battle in which we find ourselves is this idea that moral or spiritual neutrality exists. It doesn't. Moral neutrality is a fiction. It's the big lie that was put forward by the father of lies in his temptation of Adam and Eve. It's what he meant when he said, you will be as gods. He was saying, you will be in a position to choose what you believe to be right and what you believe to be wrong. But the truth is, you are not and cannot be as God. In this world, you're going to serve somebody. Bob Dylan got that much right in an old song. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what? Are we better than they? Not at all. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. If we are here today as those who have come to God through faith in Christ Jesus, it's not because we are better or smarter or anything of the kind than those people who have not done so. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Anyone who tries to tell you different is selling something, which would all be pretty depressing if the next words in our text were not but God. We were by nature children of wrath, just like everybody else in the world. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, yes, following Satan, 
following the God, small g, of this age, who blinds the minds of those who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. That's who we were. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were disciples of Satan. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God was not willing to leave us in that condition. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's no more magnificent word in this passage in Ephesians than the word but. Because Paul's saying, this is what you used to be. But... God was not content to leave you there. He intervened. Amen and hallelujah. You were dead. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The reason why Christians don't look at the rest of the world and say, well, we must be better or smarter or in some way more enlightened than all of those others who are still the children of wrath is because we understand that the only reason why we are not still the children of wrath, the only reason why we are not dead in our trespasses and sins to this very day is because God intervened by his grace in Christ Jesus. Now, last week I said that the very first piece of armor that we need to stand against the schemes of the devil is the belt of truth. And that is, in fact, the very first piece of armor that is listed by Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. We need to be standing in the truth. Jesus Christ is truth, and we need to be wrapped in his word, which is also truth. Sanctify them by the truth, he prayed. Your word is truth. But really, if we are to resist the devil standing firm in our faith, which is what Peter exhorted us to do, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, then it makes sense that we must first have faith. We must be children of God, born of his spirit, and saved by his grace in Christ Jesus. There's a story in the book of Acts, we looked at it some time ago when we were going through Acts, about some people who were not born of God's spirit. They were not Christians who decided to engage in some high-level spiritual warfare. They went out to cast some demons out of a person who had been possessed. They were the sons of Sceva. And Scripture tells us that they approached this in a very formulaic sort of way. They came to that possessed man, and they spoke powerful words to the demons that inhabited him. They said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out. 
but they were engaging in warfare against themselves in a sense. A house divided cannot stand. They were not followers of Jesus, whom Paul preached. So when they used that incantation to try to cast those demons out, we're told that the demon-possessed man turned to them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And then he proceeded to kick their behinds um, and send them bleeding and, and running from the scene. If we're going to engage in spiritual warfare, if we're going to stand against Satan, resisting him firm in the faith, we have to be in the faith. We have to be the children of God. And in this sense, I think we need to see the armor of God as more of a singular thing. You've, you've heard it said before, I know Pastor Matt has preached it here, that in Galatians chapter 5, it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits, singular, it, or, or plural, it's the fruit, singular. And so it's not like, well, we can have love, but not joy, and, and maybe a little bit of peace, but not so much. It all comes as one fruit, as the Holy Spirit works in us. The armor of God is the same thing. The word that's translated the whole armor is a singular word. It's actually panoply. We get our English word from that same Greek word. And it's saying, put it all on. Don't think of the armor of God as something that you can kind of mix and match the pieces. Sometimes Christians have that sort of idea that, well, if I have the sword of the Spirit, if I know the Bible, then that's really all I need. I don't, I don't need the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the shoes of peace. I'll just take the sword of the Spirit and I'll go out and I'll do battle. But that's not what Paul is envisioning. He's envisioning this suit of armor that covers the whole man that's essentially just comes with our salvation. We might envision the helmet, which is at the top, of course, the crown of the whole thing, as the one piece of the Christian's armor which assumes all of the others. Because it's only when we've been saved by grace through faith and we've been clothed with Christ himself that we are fully equipped to resist the schemes of the evil one. Not only to resist, but to overcome. Because it's true, we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and now, set free from our trespasses and sins by the grace of God through faith in Christ, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We used to walk in the footsteps of the prince of the power of the air, but saved by grace through faith in Christ, we have been created to walk in good works which God has ordained beforehand for us. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand 
firm. May we pray. Father in heaven, as you have raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly places so that you may show the riches and the lavish nature of your grace, grace toward us in Christ Jesus, we pray that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to walk in that grace, to walk in the righteousness that he obtained for us, to put on the whole armor that you have provided for us in him that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Lord, we know that his attacks come in so many different forms, so many different ways, the snares that he sets to entrap and to devour your people are out there all the time. Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil never stop attacking us. So give us grace to stand in Christ Give us grace to clothe ourselves in him. And Father, give us grace that having done all that we can do, we would remain standing firm in the faith, resisting Satan, bringing glory and honor and praise to your holy name in which we pray. Amen.